This is the Eclectic Joe, the podcast, 2023, episode three. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. This is the Eclectic Joe, the podcast. My name is Joe Torres. I am the host of the festivities today. This is the latest episode of the Eclectic Joe, the podcast. You may remember last week I took the citizenship test. I still have a hard time saying that word. Took the citizenship test. Uh, Did pretty well. I'm able to stay in this country legally, even though I was born in Omaha, Nebraska, able to stay here legally, and that's a good thing. Didn't do as well as I normally would have done. Uh, 82 out of 100 for me is, again, not not great. It's good, but not great. But that's neither here nor there. One of the things that got my attention was that out of those 100 questions, there are two questions that the answer to the question is George Washington. And it got me thinking a little bit. Uh, we, we don't, we allow, I think as a society, we allow time to diminish greatness. And that's probably not a good thing. The passage of time does not diminish greatness. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain uh, in 2023, he's as great as a player as there is. He was then, he still is. Uh, 30 or 40 years from from now, people will still be arguing about Michael Jordan, LeBron James, but those kids that will be kids at the time will think that both LeBron and Michael uh, have seen better days, which they will have, but that does not diminish their greatness at the time of their the peak of their power, so to speak. So with George Washington, uh, if you really start to think about it, uh, the, uh, the name is everywhere. You may, re- may remember last week we learned that there are 24 counties in 24 different states that are named after Benjamin Franklin. Um, that, of course, includes the, par- the parish in Louisiana. 24, so half the states are, uh, have Benjamin Franklin as, a, as a, a tribute. Looking at George Washington, there are 94 places that share his share his name in in this country, and that of course includes our nation's capital, Washington D.C. That of course includes, uh, it, I, I think it was the forty seventh state. I don't remember, but it's the state of Washington, and they even have his uh, portrait on their state flag. So he uh, he is everywhere. He even has a university named after him that is uh, strangely enough located in Washington, D.C., and that's George Washington University. Interesting side note to Washington, D.C., President Washington commissioned uh, a commission uh, to look at or start planning for and building a capital, uh, which would be our nation's capital, there uh, kind of at the corner of Virginia and Maryland. 
uh, with land that both those states had uh, ceded. The commission, the next year in 1791, the commission decides to name this capital city, city capital, after George Washington. Hence, it becomes Washington, and then it ended up becoming Washington, D.C., but Washington is named after George Washington. And stop and think about the fact that this guy was still alive. He is just serving the first term as our first president, and now uh, we decide we're going to name our capital after him. That's pretty heady stuff. Pretty heady stuff. So historians rank him in the top three of, of best or greatest U.S. presidents, uh, the other two being uh, Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. There are 46, but, and that, that's heady stuff. There are or have been 46 presidents, and that's been served by 45 people because Grover Cleveland was president twice, two different times, not consecutively, but two different times. But when you look at George Washington's range of accomplishments, uh, it, he, he probably was the greatest of the three and the greatest of, of them all. And I'm not sure it's because he was the first president. I think we, we, the country, we were lucky to have somebody who understood the precedence that he was going to be setting as the first president. Everything he did, it was the first time. And every president of the United States after that would follow in those footsteps and for the most part, do do it the way he did it. So it was very important that he set the right tone for the office of president of the United States. And he, the, 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 the good thing is he recognized that. He understood that. And he had, he had vision. And so it, it is a right place, right person, right time type of thing. Uh, but here we are uh, years, years later. I mean, this was he first got elected in 1788. So that's uh, 235 years ago. That was his first term of the, the election of George Washington as president. But I think it's, it's worth diving into his history up to that point of him being elected president to, to kind of see how he got there. Uh, what did we? What 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 did we as a nation? Why were we so? I won't say enthralled, but why why were we so on board with George Washington to the point that we're going to name our capital, the nation's capital, after him while the guy's still alive? And I know I keep harping on that, but I, that 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 just blows me away. Blows me away. So um, we first should probably look a little bit at at his personality, his, his character, if you will. And he, he is a person that was driven by the quest for fame, glory, and approval of those around him, as well as a lasting and positive legacy. That's what motivated him. That's what drove him. Uh, he thought getting that approval would be achieved through service, sacrifice, and character. And I think as we look back on it, uh, for George Washington, mission accomplished. 
mission accomplished. You can you can make a case that that the times make the man or the woman. Uh, Washington was the indispensable commander during during the Revolutionary War. He served as president of the convention that led to the U.S. Constitution being ratified. And, of course, he was the first president of the new nation. Uh, it, it, it's hard for us to relate to now because the nation's as old as it is, even though in really historical terms we're still a young nation. But for those of us who live the day-to-day -day life, we're, we seem to be, it's old. I mean, over 200 years ago, that's a long time ago. Um, but again, we, we, if we step back and look a little bit at it, we see uh, we as a nation, we were lucky to have this guy become our first president. We were lucky to have this guy lead our forces during the revolution. Uh, we were lucky to have this guy participate in the uh, Continental Congress, uh, con uh, Constitutional Convention. Uh, we, were, we as a nation were, were lucky. I do think it's worth a just a, a look at his early life, because like most all of us, his his childhood has a uh, direct bearing on the kind of person he is as an adult, uh, kind of person he would turn out to be as an adult. So he was born in 1732, which again that's that's just it's it's almost impossible to. Conceive. I mean, we, we have a hard time going back 100 years to 1923, but uh, double that, and uh, that's when he was born. Unfortunately for him, his father died when he was 11, so his mother uh, took over uh, bringing him up, and he had a half-brother, Lawrence Washington, who became kind of a, a pseudo-father figure as well, older, older half-brother. Uh, George Washington grew up in rural Virginia, and this is where he learned how to ride and shoot. And those are going to be two skills that will uh, help him immensely as the commander of the uh, Continental Army and uh, all his time during the war and even his time in the French and Indian War. George Washington was self-taught. He did not attend a, a school he did not have a formal education. Uh, he was home, home tutored, and he taught himself. Keep in mind the, the future, future presidents, the succeeding presidents behind him, uh, all went to college, but George Washington uh, did not go to college. Again, no formal education, uh, no, school, no, no, no formal schooling. But for George, in addition to studying reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's, he also studied the rules of correct behavior. So he basically would read uh, Emily Post, if she was around back in the 1700s, he would read her books, and he knew how to behave, and he knew when to behave. And uh, so he was very, very learned that way. Unfortunately for him, his mother refused to send George to England to go to uh, school. This was an advantage that his uh, father and half-brothers had experienced. 
she was concerned about the financial aspect of it. And so um, no, in, no school in England for, for George. Um, and then even at age 14, three years after his father died, his half-brother had arranged for an appointment as a midshipman in the British Navy. But mom said no. And so instead of going against her wishes, uh, George did not go. At age 16, he goes to live at Lawrence's estate. That's Mount Vernon. And he would later, uh, in, he would later actually inherit Mount Vernon. That's how he got Mount Vernon. Started out as his stepbrother, excuse me, half-brothers. He goes to live with his half-brother as he's finishing growing up, and he ends up inheriting it. Uh, George Washington, also he did own hundreds of slaves, and he did not free these slaves until he, he died, and he never pu publicly addressed slavery. Um, he stayed away from that. You know, by the way, he also, over the course of his life, accumulated over 30,000 acres of land. So at age 17, he becomes a surveyor of Culpeper County, Virginia. He grew to be six foot two. Now, even today, that's a couple inches above the average height. But back then, it was more than a couple inches above the average height. So he's uh, six foot two. He's, he's pretty tall, pretty tall for his age, pretty tall for anybody's age back then. Uh, the other funny thing about him is that as he grew older, his hair became white and he never wore a wig. So any paintings you see of him, that's his hair. Uh, just another uh, side note, the uh, dentures that we keep hearing about growing up uh, as we were growing up, that they were wooden, he had wooden teeth. That's not entirely true. It's not true actually at all. Uh, he had, he, when he became an adult, he did get some dentures, but they were made of uh, hippopotamus tusk, which of course today would be a no-no, but back then uh, that was cutting edge technology. Uh, unfortunately for him, they, they fit poorly. He only had one tooth when he got these dentures and the, the dentures kind of butted up against the tooth, which would cause him a lot of, uh, a lot of pain, a lot of pain. So at age 20, which would be now uh, the year 1752, he becomes a major in the Virginia mil militia. And then a couple years later gets uh, sent to the French and Indian War, where he ends up being promoted to lieutenant colonel. Later that year, in 1754, he actually resigned his commission uh, after being defeated. And he... Uh, the defeat probably didn't precipitate it as much as he saw how British officers were perceived versus uh, American or colonial officers and colonial soldiers. Uh, keep in mind, Britain had the most powerful army in the world. They had professional soldiers. Uh, militia is not exactly, uh, will, not, will not scare anybody on the battlefield. So... He does some good things in the war, but he ends up resigning uh, his commission after he loses, uh, is defeated at Fort Necessity. What is interesting, though, is the year before he joined the Virginia militia, he went down to Barbados with his half-brother Lawrence, ended up getting smallpox, 
down there. Uh, fortunately, obviously, he recovered, but this would this would experience would serve him well later during the Revolutionary War when there was a big smallpox outbreak. George Washington would return to the militia the next year, where he would ser- serve under General Braddock. Uh, he would rally the troops uh, during one battle after General Braddock was injured and ended up winning that battle. But overall, it was not all uh, not really a positive experience. Uh, the French and Indian War, his service in the military in the French and Indian War, but he was determined to learn and grow from that from it. Uh, and that would set the stage for uh, him to become the commander of the Continental Army during the Revolution a few years later. So 1754 is over. Uh, in 1758, he now wins election to the Virginia State Legislature, which was called the House of Burgesses. At age 26, which he is in 1758 at age 26, uh, because of his military service, uh, he got elected. That helped, but it turns out he also outspent his political opponent in the campaign. Now, keep in mind, though, the voting was a lot different. You had a very select few that could vote. Uh, It just was not what it has turned into these days. So when you say you outspent your opponent in 17. 58, that's not the same as saying you outspent your opponent in 2022. Outspending your opponent in 1758 could be going to the going to the plantations and buying the plantation owners a couple uh, mugs of beer, uh, which I guess was allowed back then. So in 1769, he begins speaking out against the British assault on American liberties specifically the taxes on the colonists. Now, he was, uh, he was a businessman. He dealt with uh, cotton and tobacco on his plantation. And so any tax that the British would send down is going to directly affect him. But also, he's looking at it from a bigger picture, and he's beginning to realize that uh, when the British tax him, he has no repercussions, no rebuttal, and no representation over in England as to why or why why the tax should not be implemented. So he doesn't like that. So we fast forward five years to 1774, and things are heating up between Britain and the colonies, uh, including the royal governor of Virginia, Virginia refusing to accept any more petitions from the House of Burgesses and actually just dissolved the leg- legislature and closed the courts. I mean, to, to do that today would be unheard of. I can't imagine Governor Abbott closing down the court system here in Texas. I can't imagine Governor Abbott saying to the legislature, I'm not accepting any more bills. And, oh, by the way, legislature, you're dissolved. <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's incomprehensible to me. But back then it happened because... The royal governor was appointed by who? The king of England. Remember, we were just colonies. We did not control our own uh, destiny. Needless to say, this is not orderly constitutional type government. So George Washington co-authors a paper 
that denied Parliament's authority over the colonies. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, he, he puts his name to it. The king's going to see it. That's a big deal. But the, the authority over the colonies that he really had a problem with was life, liberty, and property. So that same year in 1774 and 1775, he serves in the First and Second Continental Congress. And he wore to these meetings of the Continental Congress a military uniform in which he designed. So I think a case could be made that he is planting the seed with the congressional members uh, for his ultimate desire to be commander of the army. So now we go to June of 1775, and he actually becomes appointed military commander by Congress. Though the, the funny thing about this is that we, and I say we because I'm an American like those folks were, we had no army back then. I mean, the army we had was authorized by Congress, but it didn't exist. It was fictitious. It was invisible. We were fighting, this was the early stages of the war, but whatever fighting was done, whether it be up in Massachusetts or in Virginia, against the British, against the Redcoats, whatever fighting was done was done by militiamen not by trained professional soldiers serving in a Continental Army. I'm not going to bore you with the exact details of his service during the Revolutionary War, but I will hit, hit the highlights. Uh, one of the highlights is the, his idea to put the cannon that he had overlooking Boston and Boston Harbor. Uh, as anybody who served in the military will tell you, uh, when there is somebody above you that is uh, almost an indefensible position. And so the British were constantly having to look up to these cannon that were surrounding them, and they ended up leaving Boston. That was good. Another uh, thing that happened for George Washington and his army uh, was not so good, but turned out to be better. But the British took the city of New York back. But fortunately, George Washington was able to escape with his army uh, in the middle of the night across the Hudson. And the British, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, did not pursue them to finish them off. And so they escaped. And then, of course, uh, George Washington uh, taking, uh, surprising the Hessians on Christmas Eve, crossing the Delaware River, and that was a big, big accomplishment. Uh, overall, he may not have been the greatest military leader in terms of tactics and strategy. I would liken it to, uh, there are a couple football coaches that come to mind that majored at some point in their school in psychology. Uh, the three that come to mind are uh, Urban Meyer, Jimmy Johnson, and Tom Osborne. Uh, actually, Tom Osborne's got a PhD in educational psychology. But my point is, and I, I might lump Barry Switzer in that. I don't know if he majored in psychology or not. But my point is that I think George Washington was like that as well. May not have been the best X's and O's guy, if you will, but boy... He could relate to people, and he knew people. 
And that that sometimes is better than being a brilliant strategist or tactician. I will say, though, that, that probably his biggest accomplishment during the Revolutionary War was keeping the, the army that he actually raised and organized, but keeping the army at a level where they could continue to fight and to maintain public morale and confidence in the war. There were, uh, as if you look at Valley Forge, uh, I mean, the desertion rate was high. You're, get, you're, you're freezing to death. You, can't, you don't have anything to eat. Uh, there's disease everywhere. And I'm sure at some point you think to yourself, man, is this really worth it? I, I, I can go home uh, and tend to my farm. I, I don't need to be freezing. But in addition to understanding how important public perception was, especially during wartime, he also understood the relationship between military and civilian authorities. If you watched Top Gun, the first one, the, the uh, Tom Skerritt character says that uh, we don't make policy, people in Washington do that. And George Washington understood that that was the case even back in those days. Another thing that George Washington did was that he established the principle of nationalism. Keep in mind, at that time, you have 13 separate colonies, and they all want to go their own way. They all want to be independent. They all think they know the best. And also understand now that we have, in those 13 colonies, we have northern people, we have southern people. And if you've been around any or both, you know how different, even, this, even in this time, you know how different Southerners and Northerners, how different they see things, how different they look at things, how different their personalities are. Well, it was, I'm sure it was no less different in the 1770s as we have these 13 different colonies trying to fight a war against the most powerful army in the world, and they all have their own ideas. George Washington, as commander of the Continental Army, he knew and, and understood how important it was that we adopt the Three Musketeers motto, if you will, all for one and one for all, and that he understood these colonies needed to work together if they were to have any chance of winning their independence. But on top of that, it's an independence of a nation. That's what he was after, a, a nationalistic or nationalism uh, overview. He supported Republican government, uh, not in terms of a Republican party, because at this time parties did not exist, but a Republican form of government, a republic, if you will. Not a limited monarch, as some wanted him to be. Some wanted him to be a monarch after the war, and that, that, was, not, that was not in his, his deal, his DNA. So after the war, it's now 1783, after the war, he retires from military and left public service. But he remains concerned about government and its framework. At that time, we were we the, were working under the Articles of Confederation, which were 
not as strong as what would turn out to be the Constitution. So he's concerned about that. I mean, he's, he's, he's spent a lot of time and effort and sacrifice to command an army to beat the British, to secure our independence so that we can become a nation. And he sees this rather weak framework of government, the Articles of Confederation. And so he's concerned that are, are we going to be able to, to survive as a, as a government, as a nation, as a republic? So in 1787, the Constitutional Convention is called, and he joins it. And no surprise that he is elected to preside over the Constitutional Convention as, the pre as its president. You could make a case that the convention created uh, for the Constitution or within the Constitution, the convention created a powerful independent presidency or president seat that was because of Washington's president. Washington actually did want to become president, but he refused to campaign for it. He, he, he had more dignity than that in his mind and therefore was not going to campaign for the office he clearly wanted. Again, I think that shows his uh, character. So in 1788, he was unanimously chosen to be president. And back then, the person that got the second most votes became vice president. So that person would, was John Adams. John Adams finished with the second most votes for president. He becomes George Washington's first vice president. The funny thing is, even though he had a lot of land, had acquired a lot of land, it wasn't really liquid. So he wasn't flush with cash. The capital at that time was in New York City, and so he actually had to borrow money from a fellow planter to travel to New York City to be sworn in. Back then, people lined the streets as he made his way from Mount Vernon to Manhattan, New York. There, 30,000 people gathered to see him. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot these days, especially since New York has, I believe, eight or nine million. But back then, 30,000 people, that was a lot. That was a big, big crowd. But the position of the president is still somewhat unsettled since no one had filled the position before. So this is all new territory. It's a new nation. It's a new government. It's a new president. It's a new era. So let's review some of the precedents that the first president set. Again, as I said earlier, we are lucky that George Washington was keenly aware of everything that he did and that this is the first time he's doing it and it's going to be this way once he, once he leaves. But just a, just a few of these things. He was the first, obviously, to deliver an inaugural address. Now, the good thing for him is that he decided to make it a brief inaugural, inaugural address. He actually uh, said no to a 73-page 
address that was ghostwritten and instead settled on a seven paragraph address. He was fortunate in that George Washington was able to stand above the political quarrels. He did not have a party. Parties had not yet been formed. They were starting to brew. But even after parties came into existence, he was able to stand above it because he was George Washington. By the way, that his first inauguration took place on April 30th of 1789. That's about a month, almost two months after the Constitution says it needed to happen. I believe March 4th was the date. Uh, but it was a different era, and you had people that had to travel. And so I would challenge you to start out in Augusta, Georgia, get on a horse, and ride up to New York City and see how long that would take you. And, oh, by the way, you can't use the paved roads. You need to use the dirt roads that I'm, I'm assuming can stretch all the way up to the city. This wasn't really a precedent, but like his military service in the Revolutionary War, George Washington took, took no salary. He uh, only accepted reimbursement for his expenses. Of course, the case could be made if you didn't take a salary while you were general of the army, maybe that's why you had to borrow money to go to New York City. But in any event, uh, really, if you look at his first term in office as the first president of this new nation, uh, he was an office-holding politician who did not like public office. He was a politician who was able to stand above politics and he was a Virginian with, who stood for a singular, single unified nation. So uh, that, again, right place, right time, right man. Very lucky. Another ability that I touched on earlier, he had an ability to relate to the public. That doesn't mean he was a glad-hander. That doesn't mean he would slap you on the back. But he had a dignity, a grace about him. Uh, he would remain distant, but he was always cordial that we know of. A small thing, and again, it's sometimes the little things that come up and can bite you. But what should he be called? And it was decided, thanks to him, that it just would simply be President of the United States or President of the U.S. Congress had debated a lot of other terms, but uh, these would not suit George Washington. Now, I changed my mind. Let's look, at, let's look at some of the things that Congress, the Senate, was suggesting that we, the people, call our president. They debated such things as elective majesty, sacred majesty, elective highness, illustrious highness, serene highness. They actually even suggested his highness president of the United States and protector of their liberty, liberties. Can you imagine saying that every time you're giving a news story about the president of the United States? His Highness President of the United States and Protector of Their Liberties. Wow, that's uh, 
what do we call him? But fortunately, it turns out to be simply President of the U.S. Another thing that George Washington did was he made temporary appointments for special purposes without confirmation by the Senate. So this allowed him to get things done much more quickly than if he had waited for the Senate to do these temporary, to approve, excuse me, these temporary appointments. Another thing that George Washington did was it was, uh, which this would later change, but originally it would be George Washington's cabinet, not George Washington, that would be involved in pushing legislation through the House or the Senate. As I said, that ended up changing, but when we first started as a country, George Washington thought that this was not a dignified approach to being president. Another thing that George Washington did was he established distance with the Senate regarding foreign affairs. It is the, as we learned last week, it is the Senate that makes treaties. George Washington decided not to get involved with the Senate in any treaties, keep his distance, and allow the treaties to be ratified within the Senate. George Washington also received congressional deference to presidential appointments. That was something that the Senate and the House of Representatives did for him. That was new. Well, it's all new, but that was something that had not been done before, obviously. One of the things George Washington did was he established the president uh, as the control of the executive branch. So there was no doubt who the leader of the executive branch was. It wasn't the vice president. It wasn't the secretary of state. It was the president. Another thing that George Washington was big on and was consistent with this was that he wanted the United States to steer clear of possibly damaging quarrels in Europe. And isn't it funny how over the years that had continues, has continued or did continue to get us sucked in? Cost us World War I and World War II for sure. You might even can say uh, War of 1812 didn't, uh, wasn't helped by our inability to stay out of those quarrels. So these are just some things that George Washington did that other presidents th throughout the years would follow in, in his footsteps. It's funny, Washington did fear the forming of political parties because he believed they could threaten harmony and unity of the country. And so this, this would have been in the late 1780s or early 1790s. Uh, he saw, he, he must have had a crystal ball. He saw what political parties could do to this country. And today, unlike any other time in recent memory, the, the divide between the two political spectrum of the parties is uh, so great, uh, maybe like it hasn't been since the Civil War. And he knew, he knew that this was going to happen. So he's been in office, he's reelected unanimously. This was in 1792. He refused to serve a third term. 
yet another precedent that every other president would follow until Franklin Roosevelt in the 30s. And I tend to think it was because of the economic climate that he was elected he was elected and decided to run for a third term as the country's trying to get out of the Great Depression in the 1930s. And if you look back at our history uh, during wartime specifically, but if there is a major event or major thing going on, this country generally does not change leaders. Uh, for example, in 1864, Abraham Lincoln ran against George McClellan Pretty much crushed him. Uh, George McClellan, in my mind, is somebody who did less with more than almost any other general in our history. So it really isn't surprising that he would get crushed. But the point is that the United States at that time did not des decide to change leadership. Didn't have to worry about that in World War I. Woodrow Wilson was in the middle of his four-year term. We fast forward to FDR. Uh, remember, George Washington only ran, only was served two terms, but FDR decided to run again in the election of 1940 because the United States was still, even though they're in pointed in the right direction, but we're still in the Great Depression. We're coming out of it, but we're still in it. So he wants, uh, I assume, I imagine he wants to see it through finish what he started and so he ran and was elected again in 1940. He is inaugurated in January of 1941 and of course as we all know that following December the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. We are thrown into a two-front war uh, fighting in Europe and in Asia. He is, uh, Franklin Roosevelt is re-elected yet again for a fourth time in 1944. Again, though, because we're still in the war, no change in leadership. Uh, just as an aside, he died the next year and Harry Truman took over. Uh, what's funny is, as we look at the history, and I know I'm getting away from George Washington, and I'll get back to him in a second, but as we look at the modern history of the 20th century, uh, Harry Truman was elected in 1948, we go to Korea in 1950. He ends up firing the popular General Douglas MacArthur in 1951. Still, the United States is engaged in a war in Korea. Uh, they call it a conflict. It's a war. Engaged in a war in Korea and decides because of his low popularity that he will not run again in 1952. So 1952 was really the first time we're engaged in a war that we changed presidents, and that's when the country elected Dwight Eisenhower president. Uh, you may remember he was our allied supreme commander during D-Day and the sweep across France and Belgium and Western Europe to end up in Berlin. He was the one that was able to keep all those egos from all those other countries in check and effectively guide us the Allies to ultimate victory in the European theater. What's funny though is you fast forward a few years and we're now embroiled in the Vietnam War. Again, I know it was never officially de declared, but it was a war. Embroiled in the Vietnam War, the 1968 election where uh, Tet Offensive just happened in January. 
Lyndon Johnson's the president, took over for John F. Kennedy. He's elected in 64 on his own. 1968, he runs, uh, does not run for re-election. I think, again, just like Harry Truman, because he knew, he knew that there was no way that he was going to win. And that's when Richard Nixon took over. And uh, again, another situation of how the country changed presidents in the middle of a war. But going back to George Washington, though, he decides he's not going to seek a third term. So that sets a precedent. Uh, he, he, did, he did warn us in his farewell speech, he did warn us about sectionalism and regionalism. He wanted to make sure that we, again, we, the collective we as a country, did not get divided that way. Uh, oh, by the way, he was about uh, 60 years ahead of his time, uh, and I'm glad he wasn't around to see the Civil War because that's exactly what happened. He also warned us about foreign influences and corruption. And I may be a conspiracy theorist at heart, but I can't help but wonder these days if we're not, uh, we're not there with foreign influence and foreign corruption. Um, I just wonder. Finally, the, the last thing that he did was that he had a peaceful transition of power. That was the first time it happened. It would happen again. It would happen, it would continue to happen over and over and over again up until just a couple years ago in 2021, on that fateful January 6th day, when a rowdy mob decided to storm the U.S. Capitol building so that the certification of the 2020 presidential election could not be completed, they were unable to get that done. The certification was completed President Biden ended up taking over. But for all those years, this country had never had a problem with one president taking over for the other until that year, until that president. I hope he's proud of himself. So in summary, uh, George Washington is an American icon. I think that goes without saying. He held the nation together, and I won't say its darkest moments, but it looked pretty bad. There were times it looked really bad. Uh, that Civil War would have never happened if we hadn't become a nation. Think of it that way. He established financial stability. He avoided war after we became a country because there was no guarantee we were going to make it as a country. Again, we weren't as strong then as we are now. So there's no guarantee if, if France had decided to invade us that we could have fought them off, that we had the money or resources, or if Great Britain wanted to try and retake the colonies, there's no guarantee we could have fought them off. And I think that one's evidenced by the events of the War of 1812. But anyway, back to George Washington. He avoided war. He opened the frontier to settlements and commerce. 
and he established again, he established precedents for his successors. So George Washington leaves office and retires quietly to private life. Uh, now, Bear Bryant, coach of Alabama, when he coached his last game, he died 28 days after his last game. George Washington held on a little longer than Bear Bryant did, but George Washington, out of the public eye, he dies two years after he left office. He dies at the age of 67. Now, growing up, I always thought 67 was old, but as I've gotten older, 67 is not that old, and I'm sure uh, the 67 years that he uh, lived was a lot tougher than the 67 years that I hope to be lucky to live. I think his legacy may be best summed up by General Henry Lee in his eulogy to George Washington when he said that George Washington was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Those are, uh, those are pretty heady words, but I think in looking back at George Washington's life, I think it's pretty, pretty appropriate. I think, I think it fits. And I think there's a reason why we have so many reminders of him as a, as a leader, as a man. Um, I think I heard someone say not too long ago, it's easy to lead when you're ahead. It actually been my, it might have been Matt Rule, a new coach at Nebraska. He might, I think he said that. Easy to lead when you're ahead, but it's real tough to lead when you're behind. And I think, uh, again, I can make any parallel to sports possible, but I think that that's a very similar thing that faced our country back in the day during the Revolutionary War against the British that we were behind and it's not easy to lead when you're behind but um, I'm glad that we had George Washington to be able to lead us militarily and then as we became a country in our infancy George Washington was able to lead us uh, uh, politically. I'm, I'm thankful for that and I think as the years go by we all take that for granted. So that is my diatribe on George Washington and his greatness. If you have questions, comments, hit me up. I am on Twitter at The Eclectic Joe. I'm also on Instagram, same, same handle, The Eclectic Joe. You can email me, theeclecticjoe at gmail.com. So until next time, stay safe, everyone.